0: I'm John Bisson. I'm a professor in psychiatry at Cardiff University and I'm also an honorary consultant psychiatrist with Cardiff and Vale University Health Board. So my job basically involves research into traumatic stress and also clinical work treating people with post-traumatic stress disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder in a traumatic stress service that um, was founded back in the early 1990s, soon after I left the army, the British Army, which actually crystallised my my view that I wanted to be a psychiatrist and I wanted to specialise in looking after people and helping people exposed to traumatic events and preventing and treating the consequences
1: of those things. And I guess historically we've kind of linked, although I think the public in their minds have linked traumatic stress and PTSD to Um, ex-service personnel and it's kind of informed by the fact that you get daily mirror headlines with a picture of somebody looking depressed in army gear but we know obviously that that trauma affects all sorts of different people adults and children um, you know displaced people people from war zones but also people from all sorts of different kind of violent backgrounds so can you give us a picture of? what traumatic stress is and how it fits with PTSD and complex PTSD and all these other kind of clinical terms.
0: So I think the best way of considering a traumatic event that satisfies the criteria necessary for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder is that it has to um, threaten an individual's life, their physical integrity, or um, be sexually threatening in some, some way. So the three sort of objective judgments we're trying to to make really is does this threaten life does this sort of threaten serious injury or actually cause serious injury Um, and does it um, make an individual feel sexually threatened those are the sort of three three characteristics really and they come in various shapes and forms from actual death you know through to completed rape for for example, but there are also lots of variations that could also be included as fulfilling the criterion for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So, for example, witnessing somebody severely injured or, um, or killed would be sufficient to um, satisfy the criteria, um, as would sort of inappropriate um, you know, sexual touching, sexual violation in some other way that wasn't actually a full rape word. And um, in our clinical service, we see people that have been involved in road traffic accidents, in um, industrial accidents, people that have been exposed to um, sexual um, acts of violence that don't actually involve themselves. We see people at all ages. So a lot of people in our clinic have um, been exposed to adverse childhood Events I mean, I guess the commonest of which would be childhood sexual abuse childhood se- um, childhood physical abuse or um, emotional abuse during um, childhood uh, We see um, you know a lot of people that have been involved in um, sexual assaults as adults. domestic violence is a very common thing we come across as adults. We see people and probably you know not least because of mine and others interest in um, Military veterans, probably about 15% of the people that I see, are people that have military um, uh, traumatic experiences as being the underpinning um, traumatic event for their traumatic events. The vast majority of people we see have more than one traumatic event. So I think the mean number of traumatic that uh, people or different types of traumatic events that people report is in the 5-6 range. So one is not the the common number of traumatic events that we see coming into our um, our practice. Whereas perhaps if you were working in emergency services or in primary care, you'd be more likely to see people co- who come in after a single event. So the truth is that the nature of the traumatic event is very, um, is very varied and the best way to think of it is really that any traumatic event that you as a lay person would think would cause significant distress to somebody is likely to be a, a traumatic event that can precipitate post traumatic stress disorder in in most studies, more than fifty percent of the general population have been exposed to at least one traumatic event that could precipitate post traumatic stress disorder or complex post traumatic stress disorder so it 's best to think of these events as being very common they're not they 're not events that are outside the range of usual human experience, but they are events that are um, are events that would be perceived as being very traumatic to almost anybody.
1: And I guess what we've seen in the last three or four years particularly is this, um, this kind of discussion within the mental health world about moving away from what's wrong with you and moving towards what happened to you and this kind of idea yeah. of trauma-informed care. Um, what do you think of that whole kind of movement that's happened?
0: Well I think I think trauma informed care is a, a great idea and clearly we should be thinking of what has happened people to people in the way that we configure care. Um so, you know, for example, I think that trauma informed care should happen across the care care system. So whether you're being provided with social care or or health care, people should be aware that you have traumatic experiences and that you should be treated in a way that provides you with um you know, that is informed based on that. So, for example, um, if I'm somebody that has been um, involved in sexual violence, then a very fundamental principle is to ask me if, um, you, you know, I feel comfortable seeing a male or a female um, carer or therapist. And But that that's for anything, you know, that could be from looking at my sore throat or, um, you know, providing me with care in... A care home or treating my post traumatic stress disorder you know it 's not just about post traumatic stress disorder at all there um, thinking of issues for example sensitivity around how you um, have the layout of clinical settings that people go into should be trauma informed so um, you know having places that are a bit intimidating that are very clinical that may take somebody back to their 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 you know abusive experiences are all things that you would want to avoid and i think that's where trauma-informed care comes into its own really massively i think that a trauma-informed care system allows people to recognize people that has issues that may emerge from traumatic events that need more um you know sort of more skilled psychological input if you if you like and so a trauma-informed informed care system would also help to pick up those individuals that need an assessment perhaps for a disorder and to um, get specific input for that that disorder for for example. Um, So I think trauma informed care is all embracing everybody within a care system should be trained up to understand what the impact of trauma is what the different type of manifestations of that that may be and uh, a diagnosis agnostic sort of um, milieu, if you, you like. But I also think that it's really critical for people to understand that there are probably advantages to making diagnoses and then looking at what the evidence is for the treatment of those diagnoses so that those individuals can get the most appropriate and up-to-speed Um, treatments from individuals who know what they're doing as well so I guess my fantasy is that ultimately in a a care system you would have people who've got different levels of training um, depending on you know the level of training that they need for their particular role in a system if I'm um, if I'm somebody who's working in a, a system solely to prepare provide care and not to provide treatment I don't think I should be trained up to provide the latest evidence-based psychological treatments or pharmacological treatments for PTSD. But what I should be trained up to understand is that people can benefit from these these treatments and it's really important that I have a role in signposting people to a a pathway, if you like, that helps them through that. And that may be to go and see their GP. It may be to go and see somebody else. Mm. But I should be doing that. And I also should be able to provide what... I consider is good practical pragmatic support in an empathic manner that is informed by the principles of things that we know don't aggravate um, the types of conditions that people have who've been informed, um, been exposed to traumatic events and can actually help with them. And so, for example, I'm a big advocate of um, intervening based on the principles of psychological first aid where you you know you're willing to listen appropriate you give people um, information and you, you know you can signpost people to the right things but that you're not trying to deliver a very intensive therapy or provide for example an early intervention that's based on something that we may know can adversely affect some people as well as um, have a positive positive impact on some people.
1: There was a classic trial, wasn't there, about 20 years ago. I think I remember my first job in psychiatry, looking at this trial that said, actually, this stuff that we've been doing, was it psychological debriefing, PTSD? It's actually causing more harm than than good. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting area. Let's talk about the evidence. Let's talk about um, how we prevent and treat PTSD, then, in adults. Because you've been involved in these new guidelines, these ISTSS guidelines that came out earlier this year. Why why did you get involved in that? Because there's lots of other guidelines out there for PTSD.
0: Well, I've always been very passionate about um, guidelines and making sure that we, um, I see them as a good vehicle for um, synthesizing evidence and then informing practitioners and members of the public as to what the evidence is so that people can make informed choices about, you know, what to what to deliver what to receive, but also about how to develop staff in the future and how to develop training programs so that we've got people who are trained up in um, in interventions that actually um, you know do work and are likely to benefit people um, so you know thinking about sort of workforce requirements in the future I think guidelines are tremendously helpful in uh, in helping with that, that sort of thinking i've I've always been a uh, um, a member of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies since I sort of started my interest. So back since the um, mid-1990s, I've been a regular attender at ISDSS conferences. So I see it as my, um, you know, my spiritual home in terms of uh, professional life goes. Um, And I've also been involved in um, the first two guidelines um, uh, published by the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies for the treatment of PTSD. Interestingly, you mentioned that. that's a uh, randomized controlled trial that showed that psychological debriefing wasn't as good as a control condition and that was my um treatment trial so that was my um, my thesis my dm thesis as a as a junior doctor and i think that was the reason because i got a bit of a name for myself that i was asked to join the first ISTSS guidelines and write the chapter on early psychological interventions um to prevent um post-traumatic stress disorder so i've always been part of that gang um, and as things have gone on i think there's been an understanding that you need to move from a gang of people that know each other really to developing guidelines using the actual um using the techniques that are accepted as being the best way to develop guidelines so this means really before you start looking at the evidence in detail making sure you know exactly what your questions are for example you know, in broad terms, if I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, are there any psychological treatments that can help me? And then frame questions that can be interrogated through research around those really important, um, those really important sort of clinical questions that that people with PTSD and practitioners are going to want to know the answers to. Um, and so I discussed this with the ISDSS. They were very keen on this and I was asked um, by the ISDSS to chair um, a committee to develop guidelines and so that's how it came about and why I got involved. I was passionate about it and I thought that um, you know, with the ISDSS's support we could come up with some really good, robust, methodologically developed guidelines.
1: Do you want to kind of summarise for us what the recommendations are in the guidance?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the bottom line is to say that these recommendations are based on the current randomised controlled trial evidence, so that, that's really important in that um, it is based on the methodology that is felt to be, at the moment, the strongest. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other forms of evidence that are really important to consider, but these guidelines are based on that type of evidence. And I think it's also important to say that within the guidelines there are um there were three hundred and sixty one randomised controlled trials that were felt to be eligible, and so we had to sift through all of those trials and condense them down into recommendations. And we came up with 125 recommendations. You'll be pleased to hear I'm not going to go through those individually today. Um, And we also graded those recommendations according to the level of evidence and the confidence we had in that evidence. So of those 125 recommendations, eight of them are strong. So that's a relatively small number. But, you know, a big take home message for me is that those with the strongest recommendations are probably the ones we can have most confidence in are going to be effective for people if we recommend a treatment as being strong and we say that's a, a, as effective and we say that's a strong recommendation, then people can go away pretty confident that this is you know something that is likely to definitely help me if I can engage in it. We then have standard recommendations which basically say well there's pretty good evidence of having a recommendation, but we're not not quite as common confident that it's going to give you as much benefit as the strong recommendations we've then got five low effect recommendations and the important thing about these is that we're saying with low effect recommendations that we're very confident that these will give you some benefit but they won't benefit you probably as much as the strong ones and One of the interesting things is that the majority of the recommendations for pharmacological treatments, medications, are in that low-effect recommendation. So we're certainly not saying they don't work. We're saying they very definitely do seem to work, but the amount of benefit you're going to feel from them probably isn't going to be as strong as the strongest psychological treatment recommendations, which for adults tend to be um, cognitive behavioural, Therapies with a trauma focus and eye movements, desensitization and reprocessing. So, EMDR and trauma and cognitive behavioral therapies with a trauma focus are probably the groups of treatments that we would recommend more above others. Now, there are some other, um, you know, we we've split down the cognitive behavioral therapies with a trauma focus for the first time ever to look at individual. Treatments rather than looking at a family Mm -hmm. as a whole, and what we found with that is that actually you see some some differences with different treatments. So in this in these um, guidelines, we've been able to recommend for the first time cognitive processing therapy, cognitive therapy for PTSD, and prolonged exposure for PTSD in adults as being the three sort of um, treatments that fall within this family of individual CBT with a trauma focus that come out strongest and they come out more strongly than some of the other treatments such as, for example, um, uh, guided internet-based cognitive behavioural therapy with a trauma focus. So the evidence still shows that that treatment is effective and I would certainly recommend people to consider going for it but the evidence at the moment suggests that you won't get quite as strong an outcome as you would do with prolonged face-to-face treatment with one of these face-to-face therapists but it may be that you decide because of um, a lifestyle choice for example you know i'd need to find childcare for my children or i'll go to work every day and getting to a weekly appointment is that I'd rather go for something that's got a bit more flexibility about it. I can do most of the therapy over the internet um, at home and I would need less face-to-face um, contact than I do for one of these other ones. It also comes up with some um, therapies, you know, that have hitherto been felt to be as strong as um, things like cognitive processing therapy, um, EMDR, prolonged exposure, such as, for example, narrative exposure therapy, which we give a slightly lower level of recommendation to not because it's not effective but because the overall effect doesn't seem to be quite as strong as for those other other treatments, and um you know the same can be said for some other um, therapies that have hitherto always been grouped together with cognitive behavioural therapy as a a whole. So I think one thing that's very novel that's emerging from the ISDSS guidelines is that there's more choice available and as a consumer of um, treatment, you shouldn't be thinking just about what's the family of therapies that can help me most, but what is the therapy that helps me most and if I had PTSD, I would be checking out that my therapist can deliver me a therapy that has the best evidence.
1: (music) I'm interested in how possible adverse effects fit into that. How have yeah. you kind of factored those in? Because presumably these have all got adverse effects.
0: Yes, yeah, so I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's no treatment without the potential for any adverse effects. And I think long gone are the days where we just thought of medication as being associated with adverse effects because there's very good information that psychological treatments can cause people adverse effects. Um, You know, that said, as long as you're very careful about adverse effects, I think they can be managed appropriately and they wouldn't put me off after careful discussion and careful assessment, making an informed choice to go for a a treatment. Um, So what we did with the ISTSS guidelines, we said that if there was evidence of adverse effects coming through that we felt would adversely impact or should adversely impact her recommendation, we would downgrade that recommendation. Now, we didn't actually downgrade within the ISDS guidelines any single recommendation because of an adverse effect that we just thought, oh, you know, I wouldn't want that adverse effect. But what we did say was that for some interventions, even though they had quite strong evidence of working, the body of evidence wasn't sufficient enough to make a stronger standard recommendation at the moment. And actually, several interventions with emerging evidence of effect would be put into that. So, I mean, for example, um, reconsolidation of traumatic memories would be a good example of that, where there's been a couple of randomised controlled trials with veterans only that have shown good positive effects it's based on a very good um theoretical um underpinning of post traumatic stress disorder and the underpinning theoretical basis to mobilizing a traumatic memory and then trying to consolidate in a memory that is less traumatic than the memory that has been um, consolidated, the original traumatic memory. That's really good on a theoretical basis, but there's only been a limited number of people included in trials and they've only been veterans. And so we felt that because of that, we shouldn't be giving it a high level rating. Um, But actually, you know, you mentioned that you liked our four different levels of um, recommendation. I mean, I also like them. And what I really like is that we made very specific rules about them before we started looking at the data. So actually, though that reconsolidation of traumatic memories and other interventions are in the emerging evidence category because they didn't meet the full um, requirements of having a stronger recommendation. There are other things, for example, neurofeedback would be another one. Um, um, Transcranial magnetic stimulation would be another one that have got quite good evidence in some trials, but they're labelled as emerging evidence in the guidelines because we have concerns that we would need more evidence before really uh, rating them as a stronger standard recommendation. And if I'm honest, at the moment... I would be recommending strong standard and low effect recommendations as the ones that people should be considering as a first line treatment. And the emerging evidence ones are ones really that are still in development. So there's still more research required where, where before you can really make a, a strong recommendation. In clinical practice, what I would be doing is looking at the first ones, and then I'd have to have a really good reason not to go for, you know, strong first standard or or low effect as the the seconds um and le- you know but if somebody just didn't want those and we're very really very keen on an emerging evidence recommendation or perhaps that's like the only one we can provide at the the moment then we would look into providing that but more more evidence is really needed before you can have a stronger recommendation
1: I guess when you're making a shared decision, um, you know, looking at the guidance and thinking about how it informs your decision, yeah. um, obviously the, kind of, the patient is the, kind of, c- the core of that and the key totally. to focus on. And the patient is quite a varied thing in PTSD. You know, it might be a, somebody who's presenting as an adult yeah. with childhood trauma from 30 years mm-hmm. ago. It might be a recent veteran. It might be somebody in a yeah. road traffic accident, as you say. Are all of these guidelines applicable to all of those different patients equally?
0: No, they're not. And I mean, I think a a really good way to crystallise that distinction that you you make is to look at the International Classification of Diseases classification system of PTSD, which actually has post-traumatic stress disorder as one disorder, and then it has complex post-traumatic stress disorder as a separate but parallel disorder. So you can't have both of them. You have one or the other. Post-traumatic stress disorder, you have re-experiencing in the form of nightmares, flashbacks, avoidance of thinking or reminders of what happened, and um, increased arousal symptoms such as hypervigilance and an increased startle reaction, so reactions to threat if you if you like. Um, in complex post-traumatic stress disorder, you have those three things, but you also have what we're calling disturbances in self-organisation, which include difficulties regulating your emotions, negative self-concept, and also a difficulty with interpersonal relationships. And so if you look at those two constellations of symptoms, one with just the PTSD symptoms, one with the PTSD symptoms and the disturbances in self organization, you've got quite different presentations. And actually, as a clinician, you're often thinking people are going to respond to actually quite different treatments. And so when we did the guidelines, what we became patently clear to us was that there was a lack of research looking at complex PTSD at the moment. So instead of making recommendations for the actual treatment of PTSD based on randomized controlled trial evidence, we came up with a position paper on the treatment of of complex post-traumatic stress disorder which should sit along the recommendations for the treatment prevention of treatment of ptsd which is really just for, for ptsd rather than for complex ptsd that said a lot of the treatments for ptsd will also help people with complex PTSD as long as you're careful in your selection that people are right for that treatment and um, you know to be honest there are factors that go beyond just the individual diagnosis that determine whether a person is suitable for one or another but whether there are, whether an individual has complex PTSD or has a more complex presentation of post-traumatic stress disorder is a key factor that you would be considering in the decision-making process one of the things that we're we're working on at the moment to make um, the ISTSS treatment guidelines accessible to members of the general public is a decision aid. And so, through a decision aid, what we hope to do is in that um, in in language that is accessible to um, the lay person is um, looking at what the evidence is for different interventions, the sort of things that individuals. Um, should be or are commonly considering when they're making decisions and helping them to use both the information from the evidence and their preferences really to come up with a decision that's likely to be the best for for them. And I think that can be a really helpful adjunct to maybe have a look at before you go and see a clinician or work with alongside a clinician. Clinician to make a shared decision about what's right for for you. So we're hoping that's going to come online um, into um, next year, and we can have another push really on sort of disseminating and making sure we raise awareness. Of the guidelines to coincide when the effective treatments book comes out, which is kind of what we're looking at as the handbook um, for clinicians as to how to um, use the guidelines in in clinical practice.
1: I'm always really interested in people who are left behind by mm. uh, a lack of services. Yeah, um, and obviously in the last few years, there's been a real interest in. Um, people with a diagnosis of personality disorder yes. who have nothing in terms of support. Sure. Um, and many of those people, um, mostly women, it has to be said, with a history of violence and abuse, um, have this uh, also potential diagnosis of complex PTSD. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear you say that there isn't enough evidence yet, really, in yeah. that area. How do you see that? Um, you know I have this idea that a lot of those people might end up with a diagnosis of complex PTSD yeah. and have the same yeah. lack of services and support how do you see that developing as a researcher do you think there's a lot of interest in that population yeah
0: so 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 I mean at the moment I believe that for individuals with you know for example an emotionally unstable you know personality disorder if that's the label that they've been been given who have also got for example, comorbid complex post-traumatic stress disorder, that there's very clear evidence from research and other sources as to what sorts of approaches might be likely to be most beneficial for them. But what I can't do is say, look, there's a randomised controlled trial that's, you know, randomly allocated people with exactly your symptom constellation to one, one intervention or another. But as a clinician, I'm very confident that I would be able to assess somebody and point them in the direction of a treatment approach that could potentially be beneficial to them and we do that a lot in our 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 service at the at the moment Um, so Uh, The way that I hope things go is that we use treatment guidelines to look at where the evidence is, but we also look at it and the uh, position paper that we've developed to inform how current services should be configured to best help people with more complex presentations of PTSD. But we shouldn't be saying we've got nothing for them at the moment. And I think this has been a a big problem in health service provision at the moment that far too quickly we've concluded that because there isn't a a randomised control, we shouldn't be doing anything. The randomised controlled trial evidence stops us at certain certain point and beyond that I don't think we should stop treating people but I think we should be using the guidelines to inform what we should be doing next and I think for me the guidelines are incredibly helpful in informing me what we do next but I go beyond what the guidelines say in my clinical practice because I have to in order to treat the type of people that I'm seeing in clinical practice and I would you know, I would argue that's probably common on the vast majority of people that are seeing people with with PTSD, but if you look at my practice, um, it isn't half linked into the the guidelines, and most people will be getting um, evidence-based treatments um, who I see in my practice.
1: So let's talk about other practitioners then, in yeah. the UK, let's say. Yeah. Um, so if you're a GP or a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever. Um, these kind of evidence-based guidelines often get the sort of near response because people say, you know, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources, I don't have the treatments available. Mm. How do you see the implementation of this working? Do you think that's a a big, controversial um, issue?
0: Yes, I think it is. I mean, I think nobody has cracked the the answer to uh, what's the best way to implement things. And I mean, I think you have to have a multi-pronged approach to actually implement things properly. And clearly you need to tailor the way that you're trying to implement and disseminate things to different audiences and to look at the different needs of uh, audience. I think having um, information disseminated in bite-sized chunks and in easily accessible chunks is really is really important. I mean, I think it's really important to have some of the documents we've got, like the guidelines. But I understand that uh, those aren't going to be read from cover to cover by um, by everybody we want to get to. So we've got to find different things to to do. Um, my view is that um, people who are, you know, in. The, in the United Kingdom, we have a national health service, and whenever you, you've got a system of healthcare, that kind of makes it slightly easier because you're—I um, think—you have a responsibility to the overseer of a service that evidence-based treatments are being delivered, and you've got a complex system of. You know, selecting individuals that interview to take on roles, training up people and staff that you've got in place or um, developing training programs for, um, you know, doctors, therapists of the the future that you can incorporate these things into. So there are lots of really, um, you know, very easy ways, really. You can look to the future to make sure that the next generation are coming through this way and also through continuing professional development, make sure that people in the future are getting that. In Wales, for example, we're about to launch a um, traumatic stress quality improvement initiative for the whole of Wales and every single health board within Wales will be expected to adhere to a common um, set of outcomes that we're looking for in individuals and we'll be able to benchmark across different organisations as to what we're doing and we'll obviously be able to go down to benchmark at an individual level as to what individuals are doing and we want to look at that in an outcomes-based thing. So it's not looking at... the process per se, I, I totally understand that, you know, the form isn't the most important thing. You can do things in different ways and get the same outcome. But we're looking at a functions-based approach where we're looking at everybody, wherever they are in Wales, being provided with the opportunity to have a proper assessment, a proper evidence-based treatment for their post-traumatic stress disorder and then be able to make an informed decision whether they take that up or not Um, and I think that that's the way is to sort of have improvement initiatives where you're monitoring what happens to the person with post-traumatic stress disorder who's coming into a service so it needs to be focused around that individual Had they got a pathway that is easily navigable for them to get through the process and then what happens to them as part of going through that process and if we say well look this is what we think works best and we show that everybody comes out, does really well with it, then that's great. If we show that some people do well, some others, then I think it's beholden upon us to actually dive down into the detail of that and start working out why some people did better than others. Is it because the service in Abergavenny is better than the service in, in Cardiff? You know, are there certain practitioners in mould who are delivering slightly different interventions to others and through our quality improvement um, you know, mechanisms. Can we improve and get more, more of a level playing for every, field for everybody, so that everybody gets the best um, available um, treatments wherever they live um, and whoever is delivering
1: that? What is available right now for people in the UK, and what are the barriers to these interventions becoming more available? Is it commissioning? Is it policy making? Is it lack of skills in the workforce? Uh, Yes,
0: well, I mean, if you look at uh, the United Kingdom, then across the United Kingdom, we have a large number of people who are appropriately trained in in these techniques, or at least variants of these techniques, which would meet the requirements to be compliant, if you like, with the ISDSS treatment guidelines and, you know, the UK's NICE guidelines. Um, so in England, for example, there's the Improving Access to Psychological Treatments, service and the requirements of that is that you do have um, therapists who are trained up in delivering trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, In Wales, we have exactly the same requirements and um, in in Wales every health board in Wales has people trained up in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy um, and in eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. So I think it's more to do with having enough therapists trained up in the technique for the the demand post-traumatic stress disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder are very common um conditions i mean the you know the latest population study showed a a current prevalence of around seven percent when you combine those two conditions so these are common disorders we should be thinking of post-traumatic stress disorder in the same way as we do depression and you know other common anxiety disorders Um, So I think making sure that we've got enough people trained, making sure we've got proper supervision for those individuals so that it's not a case of just going on a training course and they're not maintaining your your skills and making sure that people have the opportunity to practice them, to deliver them, which I think is about having a pathway that has ring fence time for practitioners to deliver their their care. I think another big barrier to implementing evidence-based practice at the moment is appropriate assessments. So I don't think everybody from primary care level onwards is totally aware of what the evidence base is, which goes back to the point about dissemination and making sure that people know what they need to know to play their role in a a pathway which starts at the point of um, somebody... You know, recognizing that they're emotionally upset as a result of having been a trauma, and so you know, there's a lot of dissemination to do to the public to make them questioning themselves. oh, trauma, distress. Could I have post-traumatic stress disorder? And I think if people present to their GP and say I'm wondering whether I might have PTSD, then that will really help um, general practitioners to to assess. And obviously, we're we're training as part of our dissemination techniques, general practitioners too have more awareness that PTSD might be present in individuals. People might even not say that they've been traumatized. So we're asking GPs to routinely ask whether they've, people have been involved in traumatic events. And I think this takes us full circle back into trauma-informed care again as, as well.
1: Yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna end by asking you about that. So the individual, let's talk about the individual. Let's talk about somebody who hasn't had any support and has had a kind of barriers in terms of you know, mental yeah. health services over the years but considers themselves to have, let's say, complex PTSD, what yeah. would you say to them? What would you recommend they do?
0: So I'd say step number one would be to go and see your general practitioner. And I think that ideally, you know, armed with information that you've got about that. So, I mean, for example, if um, you went to your general practitioner, having used the um, ISCSS, um treatment decision, Aid and actually gone in with your printout as to what looks to be, to be good and introduce your general practitioner to that, I think that would really help start a good dialogue between you and your general practitioner. I think some general practitioners will will know all about it and they'll be able to guide you through and direct you the right way straight away. But I think with other general practitioners, there may be a bit of a learning process for, for them. But my links with general practitioners have been very, very positive in this Area. And I think there's a desire and a, a, a keenness to get people into the right systems. And I think often the barrier isn't about people wanting to block people getting appropriate treatments and help. It's just not knowing where to go to go with it. So I, I would definitely say as a person with complex PTSD, go and see your general practitioner and, um, you know, ask, tell them the symptoms that you're suffering from. And hopefully you'll get referred straight away into an appropriate service. If not, then, um, you know, share with them some of the information you've got from things like the ISTSS web- website or the other websites um, and encourage a dialogue with the local mental health service. You know, and, um, you know, I know it's difficult, but I think the more that people can lobby to a degree if they don't feel that they're getting through the um you know, into help that should be there, the better really. And I know that's difficult, but there's lots of different avenues. Every NHS organisation will have a um, a phone number or a, a system whereby you can put in suggestions or uh, advice in there. And I just think that the more of people, the more people do that, if they're not getting into the right system, the better. And if I'm honest, in our systems, I'd be very confident that if you did that. You know, something will filter through to somebody like me and then I could then get back and say, well, there is a system actually and we can actually introduce you to that system and get you into a process that would actually be of some help to you.
1: Finally, let's just look forward to the conference that's happening in Boston in November, ISTSS 2019. What can we expect um, from your team and this area in that that event? Well,
0: we're, we're really excited that the ISTSS board has sort of you know agreed to have a focus on the dissemination of the Is treatment guidelines at last year 's conference um, in Washington we actually presented the guidelines and what they they were i guess sort of presenting the underpinning you know research and what the actual outcomes were. This year, our focus is completely shift on to looking at how do we get those recommendations out there into to practice So the, the focus on our target um, audience for this year's ISDSS conference is practitioners that want to deliver evidence based practice in their, um, you know, in their day to day life and also individuals responsible for organisations and the, um, the organisation of uh, services to deliver to two people with PTSD and complex PTSD. So we've got two panels. We've got one for adults. We've got one for children and young people. And what we're hoping is to um, give a brief overview of what the recommendations are, some of our thoughts about how they can be implemented into practice and then enter into a productive dialogue with the audiences at those two panels to really sort of tease out some of the key concerns and issues that are likely to affect practitioners in being able to implement Um, you know, recommendations, you know, from resource issues through to, you know, how to determine which people are likely to do best with which, Treatments, so in other words, moving more into sort of the personalization of the recommendations, which is something we're very keen on. Um, You know, right through to what do you do if somebody doesn't respond well to a treatment, or has had it before, or doesn't want it, or isn't stable enough at the moment to receive one of the best evidence based treatments, you know, through to well, with these treatments with emerging recommendations. I mean, you know, just when should we do that? Is it appropriate ever to um, use a, an intervention that has an emerging recommendation rather than a standard or a, a strong one? So really teasing down into the nitty, nit, nitty gritty of what's going to really exercise the minds of clinicians is what we want to get, get into.
1: <laughs>